Welcome to Calvary Chapel of Columbia, where we're unpacking God's truths one verse at a time. And now here's Pastor Tim with today's message. Hey, if you have a Bible, open up with me to Acts chapter 2 this morning. Acts chapter 2. And we're plugging along. Three weeks into our new series, Church on Fire, verse by verse through the book of Acts. We find ourselves here in chapter 2. Once you're there, stand with me. A lot to go over this morning. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. It filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together. They were bewildered because each, was, each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthenians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphyla, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And we ask you, Lord, to just speak into our hearts. God, we pray that you would help us to remove any preconceived ideas relating to what we're going to talk about today. You would help us to examine what the scriptures have to say about these things. And so, Father, just move in might and power in our hearts, Lord, Conform us to the image of Christ, Lord. Awaken the dead in this place, Lord. Revive those who have fallen asleep. Have your way in us, Lord. And speak to us by your spirit. In the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. You can be seated. So today, we come to what I believe to be the pinnacle of the book of Acts. You might think, like, that's strange. We're we're one chapter in to the book of Acts, and we're coming to the crescendo of the book of Acts. I'm telling you, this is literally the crescendo, the pinnacle of the book of Acts, because without this moment that happens in this uh, chapter this morning, there is no rest of the book of Acts. This is pinnacle. This is the crescendo of what will happen. It doesn't mean to say that everything's downhill from here. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is this is vitally important to the rest of the book. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is what the disciples are to be waiting on. They're not to leave Jerusalem. They're not to leave the upper room until they have the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's why the baptism of the Holy Spirit becomes the single most important act of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts because if it doesn't happen, the disciples don't move. The disciples don't 
deploy into the world to do the work that Christ has called them to do. So this is incredibly important chapter. We see the church from this moment on is now deployed into all the world to the ends of the earth to take the gospel forward. And it all starts right here in this chapter. Now, it's helpful if you read this chapter in its uh, entirety. It's helpful for you to read all 47 verses just straight through. Um, We can't do that this morning verse by verse, but I encourage you to do that outside of here. Um, you know, this morning, just start reading, you know, and go, go for it if you want to, but you might miss something. But listen, do it. It's important to take it all at once, 47 verses all together. There's two things that you'll notice happen here. The first uh, that happens is, and one of them leads to the other. So the first thing that we find here is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Super important. Deployment of the church. Then we find the word of God going forward, and 3,000 people get saved. This is, this, is the, this is chapter two in a nutshell. Baptism of the Holy Spirit, the word of God goes forward, 3,000 people get saved. Here, here's what I want you to understand about this, though. It's not the speaking in tongues that the people get saved. It's not the speaking, it's not the gift of the Spirit that actually brings salvation to people. It's the teaching of the word of God. You know, so many churches here today are running after experiences with the Holy Spirit, running after gifts of the Holy Spirit. And I'm thankful that we have a heritage in Calvary Chapel that teaches the word of God from the start to the finish, a steadfast expositional verse by verse teaching of the Bible. Because faith comes by gifts of the Spirit and gifts, no. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. We grow in our, we come to know Jesus through the Word of God. We we grow in our faith through the Word of God. Listen, the giftings of the Spirit are important, but they're not primary. They're not primary. They are secondary things that God uses. The baptism of the Holy Spirit, listen, if you look at it in context of the entire chapter, it's an attention getter. It's used to grab the attention of the people that are outside of those four walls. It's actually used in two ways, to help the disciples know that it happened, number one, and number two, so that everybody outside of those four walls knows something happened as well. Like they're ready, whoa, what's going on here? We see their responses like, whoa, they were astonished, they were amazed because of what they had heard. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is not how salvation comes in this chapter. It just sets the stage for the preaching of the word of God. Now, before we go any further, I want you to know that the baptism of the Holy Spirit doesn't always have to manifest itself in the gift of tongues. Before we go any further, I want you to understand that this is a way that the baptism of the Spirit can come. It can come in all kinds of different ways. Here we find the gift of tongues being present here, and it's a sign to the disciples that the baptism of the Spirit had come. But there are a variety of ways that the Spirit of God can 
display himself in a baptism type way and, and, and through various different giftings. There's lots of different gifts of the Spirit. And so we need to understand that moving forward, some of our friends would say that if you've never spoken in tongues, you don't have the Holy Spirit, period, which is not true. We'll see here in a second. Not everybody speaks in tongues. That's just purely not a biblical statement. But number two is that, you know, they'll say that the manifestation of the Holy Spirit, tongues are always present, and that is also not the case. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Verses, um, we're going to be looking at really kind of 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. We're going to be re- referencing back and forth to that. But uh, Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 28 through 31, he said, God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. And then he goes on to say, listen, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. Paul is addressing a church that is messed up big time. They are incredibly messed up as it relates to the gifts of the Spirit, totally out of context. They're, to, they're, they're not using the spirit of God correctly. It's not that what they're doing is not of the spirit. That's not really what Paul is saying here. But what he's saying is how they're doing is wrong. Because they're so focused on these sign gifts in the way that, you know, man, I, I mean, if you speak a prophetic word or you speak a word of tongues or you speak in this way or that way, that elevates you in your Christianity and makes people think that you're more spiritual than you really are. It's a gift of the Spirit. It has nothing really to do with you. It has to do with Him. So number one, they have it all wrong in the first place. They make it about themselves, which most people that seek after these things do make it about themselves and about their level of spirituality, right? The reality is it's not. It's about the Spirit of God and what He wants to do. But, but Paul said clearly here, listen, not all people do this. Not everyone will have gifts of miracles. Not everyone will, will have gift of tongues. Not everyone will do these things. Because the Spirit of God, he goes on to tell us, is the giver of the gift. Everything is subject to the Spirit of God. He decides. We don't decide. And here's what's interesting about what Paul said here at the end, there, at the end of verse 31. He said, but earnestly desire the higher gifts. What are those? Whoa, talk about elitism. I want to get into some of this. What are the higher gifts? Let's get into that. What does he go on to talk about? What does he go on to talk about here in, verse, in chapter 13, verse 1? Love. You know what the greatest gift of the Spirit is? Love. Love. Love is the, you want, you want to see how spiritual you are, you know, Ask other people, not yourself, because you deceive yourself. I'm the most loving person I know. Okay. <laughs> Listen, ask other people, how loving am I? Am I loving? You know, do you see the fruit of the Spirit is love? And out of love comes joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Out of that, earnestly desire the higher gifts. The higher gifts manifest themselves 
through love. That's what Paul says. He's telling us, man, um, it's great that you can speak in tongues. It's great that you can prophesy. It's great that you can do this and great that you can do that. But where's your love? Paul goes on to say, to, to use the gifts of the Spirit without love is like a clanging cymbal. It's just bad. It's bad music. It's just loud noise that is annoying, actually. Earnestly desire the gifts. It's not wrong to desire spiritual gifts. That's also not what he's saying. But what he is saying is that you should, first and foremost, desire to manifest the love of Christ in your life and extend that towards other people. That's what we're called to be. That's what we're called to do. We're called to love people the way that God has loved people. And as I talked about last week, you will never have a heart for lost people unless you have the love of Jesus Christ in you. You'll never see people the way that you should. You'll, you'll see people as annoying and inconvenience. That's how you'll view people. But if you have the love of Christ and you allow it to flow through you, you'll see people, you'll see every opportunity, even difficult ones are opportunities for God to open the window to sow a seed of the gospel into somebody's life or just encourage somebody. You have an opportunity to do that. Paul is saying that although we have one spirit, that it manifests itself differently in us. It's God who appoints man to whatever position and it is the spirit of God who decides what gifts people get. And that's the way that it works. So the questions that Paul is asking here in 1 Corinthians 12 is, they're really rhetorical and the answer is no. Not everybody does that. So for our Pentecostal brothers and sisters who will say, if you've never had the manifestation of the Holy Spirit and spoken in tongues, you don't have the Holy Spirit, that's not true. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says not everyone speaks in tongues. So don't feel like you're a lesser Christian. Well, they might even say you're not a Christian, but don't feel like you're a lesser Christian if, you, if you've never had that gift or you, you know, whatever. This is exactly what Paul is addressing. It's not about that. It's not about that at all. What we should be looking at is how, how much am I like Jesus? How much more am I like Jesus? You know, we could do nothing apart from him. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. We need the giftings of the Holy Spirit. But be careful that you don't start to seek those things out for the purpose of elevating yourself so that people see you as some spiritual giant. Uh, so, so the answer, you know, do all, do all speak in tongues? The, the answer is no. So therefore, the baptism of the Holy Spirit doesn't necessarily have to manifest itself in that way. You don't have to be baptized in the Spirit of God, or speak in tongues, to, to demonstrate the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Although, we will, we will see it twice in the Scriptures. And we'll see it twice as a sign to something beginning, and I'll show you that in a second. We as uh, Christians in the faith already have the Holy Spirit inside of us. We talked about that as well. We have the, the Spirit of God. So the baptism, again, is for the purpose of what? Witness. It's for the purpose of witness, to go into the world and be a witness. It's not for the purpose of you overcoming sin in your life, right? 
Uh, you don't need the baptism of the Holy Spirit to overcome sin in your life. You need, listen up, you need obedience and a willingness to die to self. That's what you need for that because you already have the Holy Spirit inside of you. But you need baptism of the Holy Spirit to be a witness unto Jesus. That's what Jesus said to his disciples in Acts chapter one, verse four. He said, go and wait for the promise of the Father. Why? You need that, Acts 1.8. You need this power to be a witness for me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You need that power to do that. But in terms of personal holiness, we already have the guide within us. He's already showing us how to live in victorious ways, right? When now we need refilling of the Spirit of God because as one theologian said, we leak, so we need to be refilled. But baptism is, dif- is, is different. So, that's where I'm coming from is if we consider this the single most important act of the Holy Spirit here in our chapter this morning. The disciples, all 120 of them, this is in effect the church. These are the believers that exist after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's 120 of them. How many did Jesus feed with the bread and the fish? 5,000 what? Men. 5,000 men. And then again, 4,000. Right? Where are all they? They were fans of Jesus, not followers of Jesus. There's 120 followers of Jesus, and they're in this upper room here, and they're waiting for the Lord to send the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and that's what we find in our chapter. Let's consider the happenings before we, as we move into verse 1 there. It says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as of fire uh, appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So the first thing we notice about the happenings here on this day is that it was the day of Pentecost. The day of Pentecost. That word Pentecost in the Greek, it means 50. It means 50. This is also known as the Feast of Weeks. The Jews, when God instituted this feast, they measured it by weeks. It was seven weeks from the day of first fruits, which was on the third day after Passover. I'll explain that in a second. You'll follow me on this, I promise. But it was 49 days plus one, which is 50. That's what the word Pentecost means. It just means 50. Jesus has ascended to heaven. He's been in heaven for 10 days now, and he's telling these guys the promise of the Father is going to come, and the feast of the Pentecost comes, and and all of a sudden here comes the promise of the Father. It's important that we understand these feasts. There are seven feasts primarily that the, the, the Jewish people were to celebrate. You can read about them in Leviticus chapter 23. It summarizes them all for you, you can go back there and you can look at them and such. But, um, but, but he wanted them, this was a feast, one of the important feasts that was to occur. And everything else up until this point in the life of Jesus happened on a feast. Everything else that Jesus had did, he died on a feast, he rose again from the dead on a feast, and here he sent the Holy Spirit on a feast. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these feasts. It's interesting, the word feast itself. It means 
meeting or assembling place. Isn't that cool? Feast. What, what is God saying? I want you guys to meet me at the table. I want you to meet me at the table, and I, that's where I want to meet with you. Isn't it at the table where intimacy happens? It, it was in this culture uh, that when you would share a meal with somebody, that you were sharing yourself with them. That was the point. It was the idea. You were becoming one with that person. So here, God is saying, I want to meet with you at the table. I want to meet with you at the table. It, it is so cool the way that that is, that... Um, the, 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 the table that God was talking about in the Old Testament is the Old Covenant. That's the table that he met with them at. Was, it was a different table than he's calling you and I to meet him at now. We're called to meet with him at the table called the Lord's Supper. That's where we meet with God. Where it's, we're, we're, we're partaking of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ in that, in a sense, feast. We're meeting with God as we consider what his son has done for us and we're reminded that our sins have been dealt with on the cross by the perfect body and the blood of Jesus Christ, we have been made right, made right with God, his righteousness for our unrighteousness. And God meets us there. Here, old covenant, Jesus institutes the new covenant, which is a different feast. Now, I say that to say this. There are some in the the in, our, in the church today who celebrate these feasts, who go back and celebrate these feasts. And I want to encourage you that that's not wrong unless you're doing it in a legalistic format. Unless you're doing it as a means of finding favor with God. Like, I need to do this to gain righteousness before the Father. The Father says, your greatest works in the flesh are filthy rags before me. So I, don't, I don't think that's a good route to go. I would encourage you to, as you, if you do celebrate these things, that you do it in a sense that you are being reminded of what Jesus has, has done or will do. Has done or will do, and I'll explain that in a second. There are seven feasts, and I'm not, I'm not gonna go through all this, but Jesus fulfills all of them, but I'm going to give you what's your appetite so that you can further study this yourself. It's really fascinating. And I, and I want to encourage you to. You could do this with the tabernacle. You can go back and look at all the imagery, all the symbolic stuff of the old covenant and how it all points to Jesus. That is the point, folks. It, the old covenant was never meant to be a means of salvation, but it was always meant to point us to the new covenant who would, where salvation would come in the name of Jesus. So, so there are seven feasts that these guys were to celebrate. Three of them were required for a, for a male over 20 to be there. It was required. It was the law. These seven feasts are split into uh, two different sections, two different categories. You have the spring feast and you have the fall feast. There are four spring feasts and three fall feasts. The first of the spring feasts is the Passover feast. The Passover feast, you know the story when the children of Israel were coming out of the exodus of Egypt. And on the 10th plague, God said, I want you guys to sacrifice a lamb and I want you to take that blood and, and I want you to put it on your do doorpost and on your lentil, kind of forming a cross if you think about it. Blood here, blood here. And when the angel of death comes over Egypt that evening, it's going to be, you'll be protected by the blood of the lamb. 
That was a picture of something. They, they continued to celebrate that in reminder of how the angel of death passed over them as they were protected by what? The blood of the lamb. You know, it's a picture of Jesus who came at, and he died on, he became the Passover lamb for you and I. He was, he hung on the cross for us. He is the unblemished lamb. And in the same way, it's his blood that we are passing, uh, the, the, the eternal death is passing over us. We get to live with the Lord forever because of the blood of Jesus Christ. It's his blood. 1 John 1.29 says, uh, John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 5.7 that Jesus Christ is our Passover. So you celebrate Passover, do it in remembrance of what Jesus has done. Secondly, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which happened immediately. The Passover was one day, and then it started a seven-day feast called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Um, leaven in the Bible is representation of corruption or sin. And, you know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, you know, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. The, the idea is, is that sin spreads easily. But, but the, so they left the leaven out of bread. And the purpose of that as they were leaving Egypt was the, they were hurried. They didn't have time for that leaven. But it was a picture of who Jesus would become. He's the unleavened bread for you and I. He is without sin. Uh, it, it tells us that, 1 John 3, 5, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins and in him is no sin. Jesus Christ is the bread of life, folks. He is our unleavened bread. You celebrate that feast, do it in the name of Jesus. Thirdly, the feast of first fruits. This, this feast was really the day of first fruits, really. It was the beginning of the harvest season where they would, they would take a green sheaf of barley and they would wave it before the Lord as in a giving thanks to the Lord for the harvest that was to come and so they would do that listen very importantly they would do that on the uh the third day of the Passover so what happened on the third day of the Passover Jesus Christ rose again from the dead he became our first fruits this was the first fruit offering of the harvest that was to come. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Then comes the Feast of Weeks, which is what we're talking about in our text this morning. This is the fourth of the final uh, spring uh, feast that they were to celebrate. And this, is, this occurred 49 days after the day of first fruits. Jesus Christ rose from the dead on the day of first fruits. And then he appeared to, you know, a bunch of different people over 40 days on the 40th day he ascended into heaven and now it is the day of Pentecost and what happens the Holy Spirit comes on the church remember what Jesus said unless I go away the father can't come or the father can't send the helper unless I go away the father can't send the helper you I need to leave so that the father can send the helper and Jesus told them on day 40 I gotta go I got to go because the Holy Spirit has to come. And that's exactly what happened. He told them in Acts 4, Acts 1, 4 through 5, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Jesus had to go away in order for this to come. So if you celebrate 
Pentecost or the Feast of Weeks, you celebrate in remembrance of what Jesus has done and the sending of the Holy Spirit upon us. These are the four spring feasts. Now we have the fall feasts, and interesting enough, two out of the three have not been fulfilled. These are future. It's interesting when I think they happen. Here we have the Feast of Trumpets found in Leviticus 23, 23 through 25. The Feast of Trumpets, when they would, it was really a celebration of beginning the new year, even though it wasn't the new year. They would just blow the trumpet and kind of establish, like this is the celebration of the new year. They would blow the shofar, and blowing the shofar would mean two things in Israel. It would either mean we're going to war, or it means victory. We have victory. And here, uh, at the, the Feast of First Fruits, uh, you know, they would take a sacrifice to the temple there, and again, this was all fulfilled by Jesus Christ. And when, or it's future, it will be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. When will he fulfill it? When do you think you associate anything that Jesus hasn't done yet with trumpets? At the rapture at the church, for sure. First Thessalonians chapter four, verses 16 and 17. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of a command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first and then we who are alive, I think we who are alive, you know, I put myself in there, who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. And then Paul also wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, 52, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead, the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. This will happen. This has not happened, but it will happen in Christ. He will be the fulfillment of that. Then the day of atonement, of course. Jesus fulfilled that by hanging on the cross, being the atoner of our sins, 1 John 2, 22. He is the propitiation of our sins, and not only ours, but all only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Contrary to popular belief, Jesus died for everyone. But that doesn't mean everyone goes to heaven. You have to make him your Lord in order to, to go to heaven. So you have to come to him and receive his sacrifice on your behalf. The final feast is a feast of tabernacles or the feast of booths. And this will be fulfilled at the second coming of Christ. What does it mean to tabernacle? You guys know what that word means? It means to dwell, to dwell with. The idea, it, 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 Revelation chapter 21, verse 3, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God. God is tabernacling. He's dwelling uh, with man, he says. That's where God is to dwell with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. So just, just to whet your appetite, there's so much detail in this stuff that you can go and study it forever and ever. But just to give you a context, the day of Pentecost is the day that they are celebrating. They're celebrating... Um, they're there in the upper room waiting for the promise that Jesus said would come. And wow, it came on a feast day just like everything else that had happened so far. Isn't that interesting? Here's what happens on the day of Pentecost. It says that they were all in one accord. Again, they're unified. They're waiting on the promise of the Father. And suddenly, and you could circle that in your Bible because the idea is it caught them off guard. Like they were waiting and they were expecting, but suddenly it was like, whoa, all of a sudden they heard something and they saw something and then the effects of this came to pass. They were, they heard from heaven, listen, a mighty rushing wind. They heard, uh, I'm, fr they heard 
a sound from heaven, a mighty rushing wind. It wasn't a mighty rushing wind. This wasn't hurricane winds like 120 miles an hour. It wasn't like a tornado was coming through this house. It was the sound of one. You guys ever heard the sound of mighty rushing winds? It's startling. It's scary. It can, you know, it can sound like a freight train at some point. I mean, you guys know. You guys know what that sounds like. It's, it, it's, it's the sound of, uh, it, it can be so loud. You know, and what they're experiencing is not the wind itself, but the sound. It's, it's caught their attention and they're like, what is that sound? Have you guys noticed like um, various different places in the world today that there is just bizarre sounds coming from heaven, coming from the sky? You know, in, in the Bible, there's three heavens. You know, there's the, the atmosphere, then the outer space, and then there's the heaven, the third heaven where God dwells, right? And, and so you have the atmosphere, the first heaven, where you hear these bizarre sounds that sound some, sometimes like trumpets and just weird things. Um, and, and, you know, God is saying something. He's saying something. He uses these kinds of things. But here he's using the sound of this to, to help these guys understand that the Holy Spirit has now come. Wind, in, in, in uh, the, the word wind here is clearly a reference to the Spirit because the, the Hebrew and the Greek both uh, are the same for this word here uh, re- relating to the Spirit. These disciples didn't just hear the Spirit, but they also saw him in the form of divided tongues, listen, as of fire. They weren't exactly this. They were as of fire, which, um, you know, is interesting. Sometimes we want to make things more forceful than they really are. It wasn't exactly that. It was just something like that. They were just trying to describe, hey, this is what it looked like. Why tongues as of fire? Why tongues as of fire? Why, why did the Holy Spirit come in this way? Tongues as of fire. If you think about the word tongues, which we'll talk about in a second, it literally means languages, which is exactly what we see happen. We'll see that manifest itself. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is in the gift of tongues. So it makes sense that they saw something like divided tongues as of fire. The word fire in the Bible oftentimes refers to judgment. It refers to the, the, the cleansing, purification, judgment of the Lord. But it can also refer to the presence of God himself. Remember Mount Sinai when the law came down? It was the Lord was a consuming fire there on that mountain, so much so that the whole, all the children of Israel were afraid uh, because they saw God in this smoky, thundery, lightning, and fiery kind of way. But remember, it was also the Lord led the children of Israel through the wilderness by a pillar of fire. It can, it can also represent the presence of God. Some believe that uh, this fire, the representation, it's symbolic of the the, the Lord going in the world now to proclaim that it's, you know, the gospel of Jesus Christ and the judgment that also comes as a result of rejecting that. Because there is a real place called hell. And the reality of it is, is that is eternal damnation. There's a forever judgment, you know, for those who would reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. God is coming with grace, but also fire. There's, there's a purification that... That, that people need to understand there will be a judgment that will happen as well. But God's presence itself also. 
uh, Hebrews 11, Hebrews 12, 29 tells us, therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Amen? Isn't that great? And thus let us offer the God, to God acceptable worship and reverence and awe, which is not necessarily found in the church too much today. Verse 29, for our God is a what? Consuming fire. He's a consuming fire. So perhaps that's what this is all about. What we know is that God presents the Holy Spirit in this way so that the disciples in the room know what's going on. And so also, uh, everybody else outside of that, those walls happens. And, and it just so happens to be on a feast day where there are people there. Israel is swollen. Isn't that a coincidence? No, it's not a coincidence. We don't believe in coincidences. We believe in providence. We believe God is doing something. He's operating by a plan and he executes it exactly the way that he desires it to go. You got to think about this. The disciples are in the room for 10 days. You know, what are they doing? Did you feel that? Was that the baptism of the Holy Spirit? What are you thinking right now? Ask me a question. No, not really. But how would they have known? They wouldn't have known. They don't know what to expect at all. They have no idea what to expect. So the Lord comes in a way that they won't miss it. And man, I'm so thankful when the Lord does that in my life, when he comes in a way that I don't, I can't miss it. Sometimes I'm certain that I do miss things. But I think if you're sensitive and you're sincere, that the only way that you would miss something is by fully rejecting what he's revealing. Right? I think God, is, God says, my sheep hear my voice. He's not concealing his revelation for us or his plan for us. He's revealing it to us. He wants us to know. He's not trying to hide anything from us. He wants these guys to understand, here it is. The baptism of the Holy Spirit has now happened. And we see this happen again in the book of Acts in a different way. But, but it's interesting that, that here it happens in this way uh, relating to the gift of tongues because the church is being deployed into the world, number one, and then it happens also uh, at another significant point in the book of Acts when Peter brings the gospel to the Gentiles. You remember that story where Peter, the, Peter was like, the Lord caused him to fall into a deep sleep and he's on the rooftop and, he's, um, and he sees this sheet and all these unclean animals on the sheet and, he, and, Peter, and the Lord tells Peter, rise, kill and eat. And he's like, Lord, nothing unclean has ever touched my lips, Lord. I am a, I'm not, I'm, I'm not de depraved in that way. I've not eaten of that. In the, and remember what God said to him? Hey, Peter, don't call anything that I've made unclean. What he was saying was, Peter, you're calling Gentiles unclean because that was the cultural understanding. The Jews felt like the Gentiles were made for firewood for hell. That was their view. That's how they saw it. They thought Jews were dogs. They weren't even worthy of, you know, of the, any kind of salvation whatsoever. And in fact, it's been said that Jews would oftentimes try and talk Gentiles out of believing in the God of Israel. That's how hard-hearted. And if you've ever met a, a real Jew in that way, a lot of them are like that. Very hard-hearted, you know? And um, it, it's just interesting, but so Peter had this, 
had this obstacle to overcome in his heart. Like if he, was, if he and the disciples were gonna, were gonna be the vessels that God was calling them to use, they had to overcome this thing. So God gives Peter a dream, and then he says, some dudes are gonna show up at your house. I want you to go with them. And um, so Peter, that happens. He goes with these guys. And if you go to Israel with us at the end of the year, we're gonna go to a place where where possibly could have been one of the sites of Cornelius' house. And it was interesting that when Peter would have stepped over the threshold of Cornelius' home, he would have stepped over a wall that had been put in place from the beginning of time. He would have been undoing something that every Jew, you know, up to this point had an understanding of that these guys were not worthy of salvation. And God gives them a dream, and then, and then here's what happens. The gospel goes forward. They believe. They're God-fearing already. They believe in the God of Israel, but they're not proselytes. They haven't converted to Judaism. Cornelius is home. So they believe in the gospel, and it tells us there that Acts chapter 10, verses 44 through 48, while Peter was still saying these things, The Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles, even on the Gentiles. I mean, it's even written like that. I mean, you gotta get the point. Like, this is a big deal. And I'm making a big deal out of this because I want you to understand that these things happen because these were big deals. I don't want you to get the idea that this happens all the time. This happened twice, right? This happened twice. Once, when, the, when the, the disciples were waiting on the Holy Spirit to come, number one, to deploy the church into the world, and then number two, when God was overcoming the obstacle of the Gentiles and, and the way that they were blinded by, that, by their culture, and, the whole, and because they had been given the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles, verse 46, for they were hearing them speak in tongues, listen, and extolling God. Remember those words, extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. It was a sign. It was a sign, folks, and I tell you that because there are people in our in, uh, sects of Christianity today that say that this has to happen in order for you to be saved. The, the gift of tongues has to be present in order for a person to have genuine salvation or to demonstrate the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and that's not the case. This was, an, this was a, like a monumental moment in the history of the church, folks, just like the beginning here in Acts 2. So that, that's the point. The baptism of the Holy Spirit doesn't have to happen like that. And oftentimes it came at salvation here, but it didn't come at salvation for the other guys. It came after that. That just tells you that we can't make formulas related to this thing at all. So the Spirit falls on the church here. In verse 4, here's what happens. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit in Acts, in Acts chapter 2. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. All 120 of these disciples are now filled, literally, to be completely full to the brim, as it were. 
of the Spirit of God, they were now ready to be his witnesses. And they began speaking in tongues. As, listen very carefully, as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, the gift of, <laughs> the gift of tongues is probably one of the most divisive uh, gifts of the Spirit in the church today. Probably one of the most divisive. People divide over this gift. Some, one, one, one section of Christianity doesn't believe that it's at all for today. And then there's another section that says that you gotta have it to be saved. So you got this huge spectrum of um, you know, extremes and then somewhere in the middle you have people that perhaps are even in this room this morning that, that don't know, don't care, are afraid or whatever. Like it sounds weird, I don't know if I want anything to do with that, so I just don't, I just kind of turned a blind eye to it. And I want to remove, I want you to have a biblical understanding of this this morning because uh, so much of what has gone on, the reason why it's so divisive is because it's been so abused. And it's, it's been misused and it's been overemphasized and, and all of these kinds of things. And I want you to understand what this gift is. It is a gift of the Spirit. Anybody want a gift of the Spirit? Anybody here want a gift of the Spirit? Like, like, I want, does anybody want the Spirit of God in you, working in you? I think we probably all do, but, you know, what will stop that from happening? Well, if, if we operate in fear, number one, if we don't operate in faith, which is the opposite of fear, right? So we have to operate in faith. We have to be willing, because the Spirit of God will never make you do anything. But here's the deal. When it comes to tongues, I want you to understand what tongues is, what it isn't, and how it's supposed to be used, what it's for, and all of these kinds of things. And so we're going to look at a few passages here. So um, the, the, word, the word tongue itself, the word tongue itself is glossa in the Greek. And listen to what it means. Utterance, utterance having the form of a language, but requiring an inspired interpreter for understanding the content. That's the definition of the gift of, of tongues. The gift of tongues is basically the ability to speak in a known language that was otherwise known to the speaker prior to this gifting. So in other words, you just, autom- you just by way of the Spirit, have the capacity to speak another language. Like if, if I'm Spanish and I don't speak Spanish, so that's awesome, but if, if you, if I started speaking in Spanish to you, you know, like, um, don't, don't do a style of banyo. Uh, that, that's not tongues right there. I know that, I know that, uh, that phrase. But, but if I were to start to speak to you in another language that I had no concept of or I didn't know at all, that would be the gift of tongues. Tongues means languages. Tongues means languages. Is that scary? It can be, though. And the reason it is because, you know, it, people don't understand what it means. It literally means languages. And so what's happening here in the book of Acts, in uh, Peter, in, in Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 2, is these guys are all of a sudden have the capacity to speak in a language that they did not know prior to. Okay, so, so look at verse 5 in Acts chapter 2 real quick. It says, now they were dwelling in, uh, in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together. And they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. They weren't speaking gibberish. 
They weren't, you know, shooby dooby doing it or whatever they do that, you know, however they say that stuff. They were speaking in specific languages, listen, that interpreters could then understand. They were speaking in specific languages that then interpreters could understand. What good would it have done if they were speaking gibberish and nobody understood it? And Paul even addresses that. It would have been zero. It wouldn't have been not helpful at all. In fact, even, even though they were bewildered and they understand something miraculous is happening, they still can't get their minds wrapped around what's going on. Even though they're hearing Galileans, it says, blue-collar people that should not know these languages, even though they're, 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 this is a miracle, in other words, even though they recognize that some people start to mock some people are just totally confused. Other people are just going, dude, what is going on here? Amazed? See the mix there. Sometimes we think if God would just drop out of heaven into our unsaved family member's life and just do something miraculous that they would believe in him, and they would not. Look at this. This is miraculous. What's happening here? And people mock. They mock them. They make fun of them. Some people get saved, but not everybody there. Salvation doesn't come by gifts of the Spirit. It comes by faith. It comes by hearing the word of God. It comes by grace through faith in Christ alone. So, so there's, it goes on here and he tells them they're hearing in their own languages. They were amazed and astonished and so on and so forth. You can read that down. Listen, look at verse 11. It goes on to say, we hear them telling in our own tongues, languages, the mighty works of God. That's also important. Remember Acts chapter 10, the word extoiling? Same idea here, mighty works of God. So these guys outside the four walls are hearing the, the, the disciples speak these words and they are praising God as it were. That's really what they were doing. They were praising God. So tongues is a known language. Number two, directionally, Tongues is always man to God, never God to man. Always man to God, never God to man. Understand that. If somebody is in, in a teaching position or a pulpit or whatever, and they're saying, you know, they're like, wait a second, shooby dooby dooby doo. And then they say, the Lord just told me to tell you that is unbiblical. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't receive a single word from that point on because it's unbiblical. What spirit is that of? I don't know. But it's not the Holy Spirit, because that's not what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit in the gift of tongues in this context, both times, is praise from man to God. And it will always be that way. Praise from man to God. Even though there's a secondary, um, there, there's really two different uses for the gift of tongues. One of them is for unbelievers. It's assigned unbelievers, which I'll, I'll show you here in a second. Secondly, it is, it is a, a prayer language that God allows us to express our praise to him in our own private prayer, prayer closet or under our breath in a corporate service. Those are the two purposes of it. Again, Paul says not everybody speaks in tongues. Tongues and own language, so not everybody gets that. But, but the way it's to be used, 
number one, it's defined as being a praise or a, a, a you know, I'm displaying, uh, speaking mighty works of the Lord or extolling the Lord. So from man to God, and then what is its purpose? Again, sign is first assigned to unbelievers. First Corinthians chapter 14, verses 20 through 22. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law is written by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners. I will speak to this people and even then they will not listen to me. And the context of that is these guys being taken over, the Jews being overtaken by the Assyrians, Babylonians and such, and they are speaking other languages they don't even know, and they still aren't unbelieving about what God said to them. That goes to show you, it, it, it's not, signs don't make belief. Signs, signs don't make people believe. But the, the, verse 22, the, thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. So you have this context here of Paul saying, listen, here. You have, uh, you know, those who are unbelievers, the gift of signs, the gift of tongues. And when you see that, you see it in that context. Even with the Gentiles, they, it was Paul, it was uh, Peter recognizing the same spirit that fell on them, fell on the, the Gentiles there in that place, the same way, so that he understood what was going on there. But it's a sign. So, so imagine if you're in a public setting and somebody begins to speak in a tongue, a known language that maybe an unbeliever knows, and they started to hear that, and you know somehow they connect the dots, like that person would never know my language. That's how God gets their attention. It's not how he saves them. It's how he gets their attention. He grabs the attention of the unbeliever. Paul goes on to say, what sense would it make if, if these people came into a public setting like this and everybody was speaking in tongues, which happens in some corporate settings? He, he even says, they're gonna think you're crazy. And if you've ever been in a situation like that, it is, it's kind of bizarre. You're thinking like, what is happening here right now? Hey, it's just not a biblical practice because it's a sign for unbelievers here, it tells us. Um, it also can be used as a prayer language. Paul tells us in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, and really 14 is kind of the primary area where he talks about this gift. He said in verse 13, therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. So he's saying, if you, have a, uh, if you feel like the Lord's telling you to speak in a tongue, pray first. And pray for an interpretation that if you're in a public setting, like a corporate setting like this, don't just pop up and say it. Pray and ask for an interpretation that you could say it in English that everybody would understand it. That, that's really what he says here. Verse 14, but if I pray in a tongue, Paul prayed in tongues, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I'm, I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing with my spirit I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Likewise, otherwise, if I give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you're saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. The only person being built up in that situation is the speaker. Because there's something bizarre about 
uh, praying in tongues when you don't understand because you're not praying with your mind. You don't understand what you're saying. There's something bizarre about it that's edifying to the spirit, to your spirit. And you're like, man, this is weird. It's, uh, it's edifying, uh, you know, the spirit, but I don't understand it. He's saying in corporate setting, we should strive to understand. We should be in a setting where everybody can understand, not just a few people, but all people, that we would be able to get this stuff. Paul says, I'm verse 18, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Because the Corinthians were using this gift as a means of elevation. I'm so spiritual. I can speak in tongues, you know. And he says, man, I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than ten words in a tongue. So Paul is instructing us. This is kind of the way that, and then he goes on to tell us how we're supposed to use tongues in a corporate setting. So we understand what it is. We understand directionally where it comes from. It's from man to God, not God to man. We understand that it's useful as a sign to, uh, to unbelievers, but also it's, it's a, there's a prayer uh, component to it that we can use. And then Paul says, how, how are we to do this in the corporate body? And he's instructing the Corinthians who have no structure at all. And some people think that having structure is not spirit-led. But Paul says have structure, right? I think it's spirit-led. He said in verse 26, what then, brothers... When you come together, each one of you has a hymn, a a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. So in other words, just because somebody has something to bring that morning doesn't mean they should do it. We should determine, is it going to build up everybody? Is it it to be done for, for the building up of the body of Christ? Verse 27, if any speak in a tongue, let there only be two or three at most, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. If there's no one to interpret, let each one be kept silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. So in other words, if God were to have somebody speak in uh, you know, a corporate setting and the gift of tongues were to come forward, that it should only be a few people. He numbers it to three at max. And he said, if one person stands up and they speak in a tongue and there's no interpretation, everybody should be silent moving forward. That gift should be shut down the rest of the gathering. That's what he just said. You know, it's order. Because God is a God of order. God is a God of structure. It's not that he, it's not limiting the spirit of God to do things in an orderly fashion. But it, it can be if you're not allowing the spirit to move. But, but it's not wrong to have structure. And we should have structure. Listen, there are pastors that don't study the word of God, that sit and wait in worship, and then when they feel inspired, they'll stand up and just begin to preach. And, and hey, I'm not here to judge anybody, but I'm called to be a teacher. And I need to study in order to do that. And I think the Spirit of God works in and through my preparation. Right? Study to show yourself approved. You know, there, there are a lot of things that happen in the context of being Spirit-led that are not, I don't think, biblical. It's just people being lazy, not wanting to put the work in or whatever. But at the end of the day, there ought to be some structure. God is a God of order. And Paul even goes on to say in verse 40 there, let everything be done decent and order. 
And I think most times, like in a church like ours, everything's done decent in order, but maybe it's not, we're missing the all things, perhaps. Perhaps we're missing the element of the Spirit of God, you know, working through the body of Christ in, in, in these specific ways. You know, we also believe that when, when the Holy Spirit is active and he's working in and amongst a, a gathering, that he doesn't interrupt himself. So in other words, if the gift of teaching is going forward, the Holy Spirit's not going to have somebody else pop up and say, I, I got a word for you. Remember, uh, have you guys seen the, the Jesus Revolution movie? So I want to explain to you something that happened in that movie. And it actually happened. I don't know exactly the context, but when Lonnie Frisbee got up and he, and he said, and Pastor Chuck, it was in the morning service and he was teaching and he said, open your Bible. And Lonnie Frisbee got up and said, somebody needs, somebody needs to be healed in here. And then he said, <laughs> he turned, come on, guys, play something. Let's get the emotions going. You know, come on, let's, let's really drum it up here, you know. And, and Pastor Chuck grabbed him by his arm and he said, sit down. Sit down. We don't do that. And he, here, here's what happened in that moment. And that really happened, by the way. And Lonnie Frisbee went off to uh, really, he hooked himself up uh, with, with a lot of different movements, but primarily the vineyard movement, which was really focused on the gifts of the Spirit and, and these kinds of things. And what ended up happening was Pastor Chuck um, stood, was steadfast to the teaching of the Bible, verse by verse, through the Word of God. That's our heritage. That's why I love the name Calvary Chapel. It's, it's not about the name. Who cares about the name? But that's the heritage of Calvary Chapel is the, the Bible teaching, you know, that we, we believe in the gifts of the Spirit and all of that, but we believe the primary focus of the gathering of the body of Christ is the Word of God going forward simply in a way that people can understand it. And because of that, uh, you know, people have been built up and, and, and been sent out from, you know, the 70s on, and God's still doing that. It's really not about... It's just really about the word of God and, and the Lord using that. Yeah, we believe in the spirit. We believe in the gifts of the spirit. We want the spirit to, be, to move and all of that kind of stuff. But people need to be discipled in the word of God. That's why we go through the Bible verse by verse. With that said, we do what's called like afterglows. So we'll say like, hey man, we want to give the spirit room to do, do things where you know, if he wants to operate in, in some sort of a gift or whatever, we have, we have a time set aside to do that. And we have a worship night. And then we wait, and we wait on the Lord. We pray. Sometimes nothing, ha you know, nothing um, it, it miraculous happens, but something happens because the Spirit is there. You know, so I would, uh, we're going to actually have an, a, a worship uh, time next Sunday after second service. We're just going to hang out and do some worship. We're going to pray. We're going to just wait on the Lord. Let the Holy Spirit do, do what he wants to do. And we're going to do it decently and orderly. If somebody speaks in a tongue, there'll be an interpretation. If you're sketched out by that stuff, I encourage you to come. Because I, I think it would be good for you to understand that, that we shouldn't be afraid of the gifts of the Spirit, ever. We should never be afraid of the gifts of the Spirit. Our brothers who are cessationists, you know, they don't believe that the gifts of the Spirit, the miraculous gifts of the Spirit uh, listed out in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, uh, verses 8 through 10 are for today. 
because it does say that they'll pass away, but verse 10 says, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. So he's saying that that's gonna happen at some point. The, 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 you know, the prophetic, the, um, the gift of tongues and such is going to pass away. It'll cease at one point um, when the perfect comes. The bigger question is, is, what is what is the perfect, or what I would like to say is, who is the perfect? So the cessationists would say the perfect is the word of God. And so it's the word of God that, that really is the perfect there. I don't think so. Because if you go on to read what it says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a, a mere dimly, but then, what's then? When the perfect comes, then face to face. Now I know in part, but then, when the perfect comes, I shall know fully, even as I'm fully known. The word of God um, is powerful and God honors his word above his name, but it does not do that. Only Jesus can do that. Because when we go to be with, when he comes and we're with him face to face, we are then converted, perfect, the body of the flesh is gone. And we are now with him. I think the perfect is that. So at some point, they, they, all this stuff goes away because we don't need it anymore. But in the meantime, we, we think they're for today and that we should exercise them as such, but we should do it in decent and in order. So the baptism of the Holy Spirit comes on the disciples here. What we'll see next week is Peter responds to the astonishment of these guys. Verses 12 and 13, let me just read that real quick. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, this is back in Acts 2, what does this mean? But others mocking said they are filled with new wine. So here, here we have all these people that are outside the walls, totally confused. They don't know what's going on, but they know something's going on. And they believe that they need to hear more. And so next week, we'll see Peter stand up and he delivers a message that convicts the heart of 3,000 people and they get saved and they turn their hearts over to the Lord. The baptism of the Holy Spirit for the purpose of witness, the preaching of the word of God and salvation. That's the way it works. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you, Lord, for this time together, and we thank you for your word, and we just pray, Lord, that you help us, God, to recognize the gifts of your spirit, Lord. We don't ever want to discount what you desire to do in our lives, Lord, and we want to be uh, free in that. We want you to be free. We don't want, we, if there's things you need to overcome in our hearts this morning, God, relating to your spirit and how your spirit works in us, would you help us this morning to do that? God, we know your word has the answers for us. We just need to read it. We need to study it. And when we have questions about things, that we go to your word and we look to it. And yeah, we may understand it imperfectly, but we do our best. We seek you in your word to understand what it is that you desire for us to do. So God, we ask you to fill us afresh with your spirit this morning. Pray that you would just strengthen us, God. You would help us to be people who are um, hearing you clearly, Lord, that are walking by faith and a willingness to step out and, and do whatever it is that you want us to do. May we walk in your spirit and uh, the freedom that we have uh, in Christ through, through the spirit of God this morning. We pray, Lord, if there's anyone that doesn't know you, that they come forward today after the service, Lord, and that they talk to one of the people that will be up front here and 
give their hearts to Jesus and just turning away from their sin, turning to you, being cleansed and washed and uh, given newness of life. So, Father, we thank you for the time together. We just pray you continue to guide us and keep us as we close in this song in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you stand with us? Thanks for listening. You can hear more of Pastor Tim's studies through the Word of God on our website, www.calvaryofcolumbia.org. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again as we continue to study God's Word.